On this episode of the Last Thing Podcast, we're going to be talking about Shenmue 1 till 3, as well as talking about the legacy of Yu Suzuki. Hello and welcome to another awesome episode of the Last Thing Podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Toffee, and joining me is... It is I, Shafiq. Yes, that is right. <laughs> as stilted as always, huh, <laughs> stilted as always. Yes, we were talking about the Shenmue series. That was yep, a yep. terrible foreshadowing of what's going to be happening. But yes, yeah. uh, uh, wow, Shenmue three dropped. Huh? Did you kickstart yeah. it? <laughs> uh, no, I did not because I already got burned by kickstarting uh, Mighty Number no. Nine. Remember Ooh. that mess? Yeah. So after that, yeah, I decided not to actually spend like more than three hundred US on anything like this. I was so tempted to actually kickstart uh, Blood, uh, Blood Stain, the oh. what's that, the Koji Igarashi game. That actually turned out alright, come to think of it. Dude, we should definitely do a full-on review of that because I'm loving me some uh, Symphony of the Night slash Metroidvania action. Oh yeah, yeah, you'll enjoy it. I finished it like a couple of times, really good stuff. Yeah. But And I think the best part is um, Koji Igarashi and his team, he actually took a lot of things from other Metroidvania games and kind of spiffed it up a little bit so it's not as archaic as Symphony of the Night. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think that would be also a good analogy for what we're going to be reviewing later because it's like, oh, he's very much aware of how things have progressed and decided to include it into his product which is definitely nothing but nostalgia, like, click, <laughs> throw bait. So, uh, ah, Shenmue. <laughs> yeah, we're finally going to be tackling this. It's been a while. Like, yeah. um... This is the time when we actually, uh, I mean, uh, okay, uh, before we talk about Shenmue and how Sega was banking, putting all we the eggs in one basket. We need to talk about Yu Suzuki and how much of a legend this man was because whenever people yep. talk about the greatest uh, video game developers and creators of all time, what always gets thrown into the mix is the likes of uh, Hironobu Sakaguchi, definitely Shigeru Miyamoto. And even in the West, we have guys like John Carmack and John Romero for like starting the whole FPS craze. You got Will Wright and Sid Meier as mm, well. Definitely those guys. And I think Yu Suzuki is one of those few guys who actually made giant leaps and bounds when it comes to uh, innovation and technology and the ability to interact with games. And I think because he doesn't get as much shine as he deserves to because, well, partly... Sega in general don't really they're not really well known for creating like rockstar developers. They're more famous for creating rockstar teams. Yeah, yeah, rockstar teams with uh, esoteric developers cuz I think remember like a lot of drama of Yuji Naka when he was working on Sonic onwards yep. like there you go. A lot of stuff going and on. the thing is everybody will credit that to Sonic Team. Sonic Team presents Sonic the Hedgehog. Yep. They don't really say who's the specific uh, creator or who's the specific art director. Whereas Yu Suzuki, uh, for all of you who don't know, back in the good old days of uh, Sega when they were pushing arcade machines... Like in the 86, 87 era? Yeah, this even? is definitely before they decided to jump on the console bandwagon. I mean, this was definitely the Master System era. It wasn't quite the Mega Drive. The Mega Drive will appear later in 88 or 89. Yeah, it was around the 89 yeah. period. And then, like, if you all recall, the Mega Drive was definitely the console that would replicate the arcade experience. I mean, that was what it was basically uh, the platform it was being sold on because everybody remembers like, hey, remember Altered Beast? It's exactly the same on this console. Yeah, remember Strider or Golden Axe? It's exactly like that too. Yeah, and remember how bullshit hard they were? But now you don't need to put in money. You just, you know, press continue. <laughs> like, oh, hey. No, these games... actually, th actually, some of these games actually give you limited continue. So you have to finish it with just three coins or three lives. Mm -hmm. That's it. You're done. Yep. So, uh, uh, wow. Well, I mean, we need to do an entire episode of like uh, the entire Sega business model of porting arcade games. Sure, they look just the same, but 
all these arcade games are, if you don't have that uh, sense of danger or the sense of loss or like you know it, it affecting your revenue mm-hmm. that's not really that fun huh? <laughs> yeah exactly yes yes that's why they gotta make it batshit hard so you keep playing it over and over again I mean that except for Strider Strider I hate it when people say that that game is overrated it's not it's good it is very it's good. very good okay I mean nostalgia bait aside uh, there's gonna be a lot of nostalgia baiting in this episode so yeah, we should actually start focusing on the earlier titles before Golden Axe mm. because um, Yu Suzuki when he started working around 84 85 around there mm-hmm. he after a couple of years he actually created a but like one stellar arcade hit. It was a motorcycle game. Uh, hang on. Yeah. So like, what made this game stand out from the rest was this was the era of like the coffee table uh, arcade machine, where basically, I mean, if you watch yourself some uh, high school girl anime on Netflix, you'll recognize those tabletop games, or even like uh, what do you call the the stand up arcade machine, where you'll be facing a screen, and then uh, Yusuzuki decided to like. Uh, push the immersion to a new level by instead of having you sit on a normal chair looking at a screen he decided to make the entire cabinet a motorcycle yeah and not only that he put the screen on where the windscreen should be and that's how you would play the game you would steer your chair literally like this uh, prefab motorcycle body you would wrap your legs around it put in the tokens and as you would play the game you would be steering it as if you would a motorcycle and this was extremely ingenious because back in the day this was a level of immersion that nobody saw possible or coming and I think there was a little uh, I would say a certain amount of bravado you needed to kind of convince people to build stuff like this because I mean you have to understand uh, when it comes to like uh, Japanese business model is like yeah I don't think this is very efficient money making I think this is especially true for Sega because they have been very receptive with like ideas especially from the West or Western style ideas of being immersed in games but somehow Yu Suzuki had the magic touch or the magic speech I think it's also uh, maybe that uh, maybe his amazing ability to convince people to get his way which is probably going to explain a lot of what goes on uh, with his entire career because I mean (laughs) pretty much like right after that you know like not after uh, Super Hang On then he would also reinvent like perspective and shooting games with the likes of Space Harrier I think it was one of the first few 3D games yeah with, uh... where with the pixels would kind of like you would be going into the game instead of like it wasn't a side scroller yeah. and, and that blew people away back then because Space Harrier and then there were other games like ABC Corp or everything it didn't feel like like a traditional like arcade game where it was a left to right or a maze game it was like you were going into the horizon, which was very groundbreaking for its time. And then yeah. he would later kind of uh, repeat the formula. I wouldn't say repeat, but then he would drop the smash afterburner, which everybody played. Everybody was doing freaking barrel rolls. And uh, oh, I don't know. It's uh, To me, afterburner, out of his uh, stable of games, right? that's the one that kind of... Stuck. It had a rocket soundtrack and a rocket dude, sound effects thing going as on. As a kid of the eighties, right? There was nothing more glorious than walking into an arcade and seeing like that amazing afterburner cabinet with yes, just the music, so beautiful, and just looking oh. at like back then how realistic that was, and just like I would also say, right, probably one of the best explosion sounds in the arcade <laughs> ever. <laughs> so you know? good. And okay, then of course everybody's also gonna have to talk about Outrun, which is his uh, take on the. The racing game, but now sexier because you have some chick in the car with you. 
Yeah, actually, I didn't, I didn't play that that much because I think I was still hooked on Afterburner because you know flying a plane mm. is bigger and better than flying a, than riding a car. No, but, but at the what, same time, what it's got some appeal. Here's the big deal about Outrun, and I think like especially a lot of driving game enthusiasts will uh, attest to is the fact that this is one of the few games with, which got the physics of uh, driving correct. Where instead of like, if you play normal racing games, it was basically uh, you switching between lane one, lane two, lane three just to yep. avoid traffic. Whereas this one, it really was like, you know, uh, the more you accelerated and the more you attacked a curve too much, you would literally flip out of your car and survive and run to your car, flip it back and keep going. Uh, okay, it's an arcade game. Okay, it's, Yeah, yeah, it's, you're not allowed to have deaths, especially for this kind of colorful arcade game. I know, so but especially for a game of that, uh, I would say, for an arcade game, I mean, it knew it was a video game, but also at the same time, it was pushing physics in a way that nobody had ever seen before. Because uh, back then, that was the most realistic car driving simulator ever. Yeah, this was like even way before they Daytona even came out. This way was like before, four like, or five years, yeah, before. For all you racing car nerds, I mean, racing game nerds who like can't decide between Arsetto Corza, Forza or what's the the, the Forza or uh, Gran Turismo, G- right? Gran Turismo, Gran yeah, Turismo. you know, like okay, back in the day. It was just Outrun and Outrun 2. <laughs> and it had a rockin' 80 soundtrack, okay? Yep, yep. Magical Sun Shower. Good tune. Yes! <laughs> but that's, that's the best track. But, uh, I mean, what we... I mean, basically what we're trying to do is like, Yu Suzuki was the goddamn man. Okay? Everything he churned out was printing money. Okay? From Hang On to Space Area, Afterburner, Outrun, and also his uh, eventual masterpiece which came out in 1993. Virtual Fighter. Oh, yes. The very okay, when... first 3D Fighter. Every 3D Fighter, I don't care who you are. If you're a Tekken fan, DOA fan, Soul Calibur or fan. Or Soul Calibur fan, yeah. Yeah, okay. Look, this is the first. <laughs> this inspired everything. Yeah, let's not forget in 1992 when, Super, uh, when Street Fighter 2 first came out. Yeah. I think the following year, every other company was churning out your own 2D fighters mm. from your Mortal Kombat to your Fatal Furies or even your Data East ripoff Fighters History or Fighters History Dynamite. I thought it was called... Yu Suzuki... Oh, yeah. Was it called Carnal something in there? Oh uh, yeah, it was called Carnal's Revenge in the American release. But in <laughs> Japan, it was Fighters History Dynamite. But, which I have to admit, it's actually still kind of fun to play up to this day. It's still a better title too. Yeah, yeah, that too. But anyway, Yu Suzuki, instead of Zig, he zagged basically. Like, mm. I think it was what you said earlier on. What happens if your character sidesteps? Yeah. I think that's, that's the thing. Like, everybody was trying so hard to kind of uh, write the coattails of Street Fighter 2 that they decided to push the gimmick in all sorts of weird directions. But what they failed to realize is, like, like someday like, Yu Suzuki would look at a video game, step back, look at the bigger picture, and think to himself, like, no, 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 I need to. How do I top Street Fighter? Everybody is basically Street Fighter plus this. And then, yeah, like, it's like using the Y and the X uh, axis. And then for him, it's like, he's the guy who invented perspective in video games he's the guy who is constantly pushing immersion and then like he looked at it and thought to himself no 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 this this still looks flat this still looks like two guys who are fighting on a straight line you should be able to sidestep and walk around punches Mm. and then I don't know he went straight to the lab he brought his team with him and then Virtual Fighter which dropped back in 93 and if you think Mm. about it right uh, yeah this is like we were still being blown away by like Terminator 2 in the cinema you know, and then to, we thought to, like back then, like oh, the computer graphics are gonna take over the world, and this was so mind blowing, especially if like if you put this next to a Street Fighter machine or even like to a Mortal Kombat machine, yeah. and then like 
even though you had the whole brevity of like Neo Geo uh, freaking fighters like, like the big sprites or like the yeah. zooming in zooming out for Samurai Showdown seeing it in 3D even, that was uh, pretty awesome I think that's the thing it's very hard to conv- to remind people is like people look at Street Fighter 2 is like oh this is the de facto fighting game 2D agreed we sure and then you could see all the clones next to it like even if you were to see something like Art of Fighting with like okay yeah exactly with the Neo Geo zoom in and zoom out Okay, yeah. or like you know, oh, they have a button to taunt. You press start, and he just does extra actions. And even or Samurai Showdown with weapons. Yeah, and even Fatal three. Fury kind of was the pioneer sidestep game, so to speak, because they were fighting on dual planes, but yep. it wasn't exactly 3D. It was literally it wasn't a full Z-axis line. Yeah, it was just one plane. That's it. It was basically plane. you would slide to the background or the foreground. It was still two lines, you know, on top of each other. Whereas this was like, no, literally, if you were standing in the wrong spot, your punch will not connect. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you were to kick somebody and the guy was to duck, you could duck, like, kicks accurately. I mean, it was a level of immersion, a level of interaction that I would say, and then I would say also, the fact that it was running on a machine right next to these guys. And then, for me, especially as a kid back in the early, like, in the 90s and 80s, right, this was the future. Like, I don't know if you had the same experience as me, but when I saw Virtual Fighter for the first time, firstly, I complained that it was $2 per play. Fuck you, <laughs> Fun fun World Parkway uh, Parade for making this an extremely expensive video game. Mm-hmm. But also, like Street Fighter, I thought to myself like, okay, every video game should be just like this. This is, this is the next level. But I don't know, there wasn't much of a Virtual Fighter scene here in Singapore. It only came much later. I think this was because it did look like... A, I mean, it's a pioneer in fighting, so people weren't used to seeing mm. 3D fighting games back then. Because when I was actually checking this game out at Genting Highlands, um, when the, at the time when they actually had a big-ass arcade scene over there, up the hill, you know, in the casino and everything. Mm. Um, yeah, at the time, they were also showcasing a lot of VR stuff. So there was that giant or circular playmat thing with the bars with people wearing the helmets and doing some VR stuff fighting a really poorly rendered dragon at the time oh, I can't next to it was actually uh, next to it was actually the Virtual Fighter cabinet the very first one I've actually touched and it was around that same year like 93, 94 I forgot which year but it was still it was there no one was playing it because again it was very alien I was probably the only one around that time who probably touched it and also another kid just came into it and we just fought it is, was fun is it, it very, very probably fun. because I don't know, because I think maybe for a game like Virtual Fighter, when it came out in 93, like, okay, it was it came out during the height of Street Fighter. Mm-hmm. And Street Fighter was kind of pushing, I would say, fighting games to the point where it was, like, pushing speed. Because then would be the, the, the crazy rush for, like, uh, turbo hyper fighting, which game was faster, which game felt more smoother. Ooh, I should also add that next to those cabinets I was playing at, there was, like, um... Fatal Fury Special, mm. there was, which was so fast at the time. And of course, uh, Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo, which was super fast. You know, like probably the fastest game at the time. I would know, say, no, actually, the, fight, the fastest game at the time in 94 was definitely Marvel Superheroes. Because you could. Oh, the biggest, yes. That oh game God. was extreme. I think that's the thing, because, like, why Virtual Fighter probably didn't, like, take off as much is because a lot of people felt it was kind of clunky. It was kind of, like, floaty, especially. Oh. Like when you do like like Nina's like uh, moonsault kick, right? It's just like yeah, it takes it takes her forever to land. Oh wait, I'm talking about the wrong character. Uh, you're talking about Sarah, 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 Nina's in Sarah Tekken. See, yeah, you uh, obvious ripoff. Yeah. Yep. you know <laughs> what I mean. And then it's like uh, I would say this right. I also like uh maybe say something like 
Street Fighter, like, you know, then the clones would come out. I mean, Tekken wouldn't arrive until much later. Mm-hmm. It would probably be maybe two or three years. Like, they would, because I remembered, like, after Virtua Fighter 1, it was only about a year and then Virtua Fighter 2 came out, and it was such an improvement in fidelity and in, like, smoothness. Uh, and yeah. also had the most bullshit character of all time with Lion with his down like <laughs> mash kick to win yeah like, yeah he's the fastest character to use fuck that shit yo before people were complaining about the couple era guy in Tekken we had yeah, Lion Eddie to Gordo. deal with <laughs> okay? I remember Eddie Gordo and Lion as well okay, yes. so fuck you Lion users from Virtual Fighter 2 era uh, but but that also fixed the speed. I mean, so no one was actually jumping like they came out from the moon now. I think everything was just sped up. After hearing the criticisms for Virtual Fighter, Virtual Fighter 2 was a very huge improvement. Yes. Also directed by Yu Suzuki it as well. It was a stratospheric yeah. jump in not only quality, but also in technology. And I also want to point out one more thing. Virtual Fighter probably fixed the problem with uh, a lot of fighting games. I-, I do recall like doing the research for this episode where Yu Suzuki mm-hmm. felt like he didn't really like Street Fighter because he felt like everybody was playing inside a box. <laughs> That's true. You know, like, yeah. he didn't understand why the corner system exists because he's like, shouldn't the street go on forever? This is a real street fight. Mm-hmm. And then he realized that, oh, you couldn't render an entire world for you to fight through. Yet! <laughs> so he invented the ring-out system, which uh, was also yes. kind of ingenious, which is kind of used to this day in every 3D fighter. Mm-hmm. So it's like, not only did he invent like a style and a way of playing fighting games, but he also invented what would be the de facto rules <laughs> for fighting games. Yeah, for 3D fighting games, you either just KO your opponent or just ring him out. Yes, yeah. and it's a whole new level of tactic and symmetry that nobody expected. So. Which is also kind of a fun wins, uh, winning condition because you could be at full health and you could just die because you just accidentally stepped off the map or someone just threw you to the other side of the map. Or even better, when like you fight against one of those asshole Yoshimitsu characters and you perfectly sidestep <laughs> His hit, his his hit charge, and he yep. goes off the map. He's like, That's there's nothing more satisfying than that. Or, I think this is very evident in like a uh, current game, um, Soul Calibur Six. Certain characters are shit at dealing damage, but when they're next to the corner of the ring, oh, they're the best. Sumina, <laughs> uh, Sumina is one of them. Oh fuck that! No, or Kilik with his bullshit, like. He- any part of his bow staff can knock you off the map. Yeah, yeah. There's actually a move where he actually does a crotch hit and then he lifts you out. Yeah. I remember. It's not, not, enough, not enough for us to harp on it, but like, Virtual Fighter has been acknowledged as one of the most important video games of all time. I mean, we it, shouldn't stop at Virtual Fighter 2 because yeah. I, I think without Virtual Racing, the set the style of graphics wouldn't be set for Sega mm-hmm. to build a template on because Virtual Racing was, I think, a year earlier. Yeah, yeah. And it was kind of slow for some people nowadays, but back then, it was just nice to see a really realized Formula 1 3D car like driving out in the wild in 93 it was I mean, impressive to say the least when I saw that in the arcade I was kind of impressed you know what made me even more impressed what? when it came out on a Sega Saturn <laughs> oh my god yes people over at the other house was like telling me oh Star Fox on like my Super Nintendo looks amazing have you seen virtual <laughs> racing on the Sega Saturn dude it's way nicer than your Star Fox I'm sorry but I also kind of want to mention Virtual Cop. I mean, sure, it wasn't completely groundbreaking. Dude, but it's a real shooter. Fun, <laughs> I know, it's a real shooter, but it was fun. And I think one of those games that was consistently 60 frames, which kind of pushed Sega to make all the games all 60 frames per second with the 3D engine and everything. I think, what was it later? It was later uh, kind of usurped by what? Time Crisis, right? Time yeah, crisis yeah, Time Crisis came in later because of the dodge button. <laughs> you know, the hide oh, button. The, you, which you could step on back in the arcade, right? Yep, yep. That was also kind of fun too, but Virtual Cop was first. Can I ask you one thing? Did you do the the, the scum tactic of... Oh, you mean the one where you had to finger... Put your finger, finger on the... the right. 
Of course, everyone did. <laughs> Everybody did. I mean, that's how you play House of the Dead. That's how you play Virtual Cop. That's how you play most real shooters with a gun. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, uh, and did you do the put the hand on top of the the laser to reload it faster? Oh yes, I did that. Actually, a friend of mine told me that after that, like he found it by pure blind luck. Yeah, instead of shooting off screen, why don't you just block the laser, shoot your own hand, <laughs> yeah. and then you automatically reload. And then with the other, the same hand, you can just uh, rattle off the trigger. Like, oh man, yes. this kind of arcade scum tactics. Yeah. Okay, you know what? Props to uh, <laughs> Virtual Cop for making us better and more efficient gamers. Yes, I would say this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh god. I mean, can I also mention one last thing? When it, I mean, oh yeah, yeah. When it comes to Yu Suzuki, uh, definitely the pinnacle of achievement in terms of technology and immersion and sheer like. Uh, he made the arcade a theme park when he came up with the R360. And Ooh, okay, yes, for all tell you me about that because I've never touched that before. For all you kids out there, imagine this: imagine an arcade cabinet that you could sit on that was literally a giant gyroscope with two axes, and not only could you like uh, turn left and right, but you could also turn uh, up, up. You can also go upside down. <laughs> it's very hard to explain, but it's literally a squirrel cage, and you are strapped in playing G Lock. And like for a lot of us, like when we played Afterburner, and it was like totally amazing and totally immersive. Now the the arcade cabinet would also barrel roll with you. It's very hard to explain just how nutsoid that was, and it was also kind of expensive because I had to pay like two bucks for ten minutes on this machine. Jesus, Christ, back in the day, shout outs to the YY Wonder Space over in the good old eighties and nineties during the height of Sega versus Nintendo. And I would say this, right? I mean, G-Lock, and when you played it on your Sega Mega Drive, it just wasn't the same. It's like, it, that, nah. It's kind of missing the point. It's like, I mean, you need that machine, right? Yeah, isn't it? it's like, you were thinking to yourself, like, this is a generic, uh, you know, Top Gun, like, fighter, uh, jet fighter, like, simulator. But if you sat in that thing, and once you barrel rolled, the whole machine turned with you. You could have... And it, no, there's nothing even more hilarious than watching the, the timer go off when somebody is perfectly upside down and having Ooh. a poor arcade attendant try to fish this person up from the machine cabinet. <laughs> oh my god. Something that they didn't quite figure out. And I was like, uh-huh. Release the cage so that yeah, people could get out so they wouldn't be stuck there upside down for the entire dude. But it's kind of crazy seeing something like this back in like 88 or so. Like I mean, it was the like arcade 80s. era. It's like, And that's something that is very hard to explain to especially younger like uh, listeners of The Last Game Podcast. Yeah, when you were actually playing these games, you were like using the actual thing which the game was representing. Like, hang on with the bike, after burning the cockpit and the joystick. Yeah. And G lock with that really awesome contraption you just R360. <laughs> yes. What does R mean? Rotate. Rotate 360. Oh, wow. Very oh, efficient wow. with the naming. <laughs> yes. Nice okay. one. Sega. And I would say this, right? This entire era of Yu Suzuki's career, I would say that like, he was definitely pushing the boundaries when it came to uh, immersion and it came to interactivity with video games in the arcade. But like everything else all good things must come to an end and like as much as Street Fighter with the dead cat bounce for the arcade scene back in the 90s like it was definitely on its way down because people were kind of losing interest in like maze games and Pac-Mans and like whatever yep. was going on and yeah or like a static shooters as well back mm, in the day too. and then like I mean you could even kind of lay blame to the likes of Sega for like kind of cannibalizing their own market because when they released the Sega Mega Drive there was nothing but the promise of having the arcade experience in your own home on your 16-bit console to which Yu Suzuki was also probably like probably involved in it engineering wise but mm -hmm. I would say like that was also what probably pushed him to kind of push the arcade experience more knowing that you couldn't just get away with simple sprite based video games anymore so it's like, it had to be a roller coaster. it had to be 
something that turned 360 and he that was his thought process and I would say it came to a point like yeah all good things must come to an end the arcade scene died let's just yeah. be honest about it like as much as people harp on the fact that oh there was still like uh, the, the beat mania era or like maybe whatever it was like the, the final death knell of the arcade would be like the Dance Dance Revolution era, like or know. even just more 3D fighting games and 3D racing games. Yeah, I know, or like you know, like even Initial D and all those other like cabinet games, right? It's like, nah, this is this is it. It's, it's not. Gonna, I mean, if you go to any arcade nowadays, it's nothing but reflex games and reaction yeah. game. It's not gonna go beyond that. I mm. mean, you're gonna find different iterations, like a Maestro game where you actually have to use a bar that captures your motion. You yeah, got and, hands around. and that's, that's the that's thing. That's about it. I mean, like, it's plateaued. It's come to a point where, like, if you go to any arcade right now, it's either, like, an old, worn-out, bishy-bashy machine in the corner and a UFO catcher that probably has prizes from, like, 10 years ago. Or even Rambo 3 or Rambo 4. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I mean, and it's very hard to explain. And because, like, like, in our era, when we went to the arcade, it was an experience. Yeah, this was mind-blowing. And it was, like, basically, we always look forward to those weird, lovely Sega machines. And then it's nice to know that there was this one man was in charge of all that <laughs> and like okay thank you so much Yu Suzuki for making the arcade experience something to remember but I think that was not enough for him because uh, we need to also talk about probably his final contribution to the sense of creating and developing a video game because as much as he was all about pushing immersion and pushing uh, perspective in arcade games I think deep down inside he was kind of thirsting for something a little bit more auteurish or something a little bit more I would say creative like he wanted to yeah. really push his artistic uh, ability and uh, very much like his uh, younger contemporaries because I would say Yu Suzuki was and we need to talk about probably his epic uh, I won't even call it a masterpiece but it's definitely beyond that we have to talk about Shenmue which dropped very much uh, in the, the 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 final year of the millennium in 1999. Yeah, 1999. yeah. but 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 before that, uh, we have to remember this game was I believe it was six years, five years in the making. Definitely. And this was in the time when Sega was kind of like going at a really going basically downhill. Like they're trying to have the arcade experience. They have like they're trying to release the next gen console. Um, the Saturn kind of flop because of PlayStation and all that. And even before then, there was also like the public's trust in Sega was kind of dwindling because of the 32X and the Mega CD and the many false promises of add-ons making your games look Yeah, better. I mean, I would definitely give more blame to the th uh, the Saturn flopping because they were like they were pushing the developers to work on the 32X and then only for them to realize that six months later another console was going to come out which kind yeah. of made them especially your, your license also expensive games. too back in the day yeah like 399 so like a lot of people were like thinking like why are you like you know jerking us around if you're going to ask us to develop for the 32X when you have another console in the works and I think yeah this was just Sega had this problem of eating itself like it was definitely cannibalizing its own market because I mean literally Sega was definitely at the top of uh the so-called console wars back then I hate using that term but it's like between Nintendo and Sega like during the Famicom versus 16-bit Sega era right Sega it was fine it had nothing to worry about but it decided to just go like you know total like it just spazzed out and decided to release things that nobody really asked for like, yeah, yeah. like the Sega CD was like it was kind of cool but I didn't really it, really it didn't really justify the purchase for having 16-bit oh yeah. graphics but with uh, CD quality audio. Sure, it looked, it sounded nice on like Sonic CD or Ernest Evans or games like that. But, you know, like, you know, then you play a Night Trap and like, yeah, this looks kind of garbage still. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like what? 32? Uh, 16 colors, basically. It was still a 16-bit machine, but uh, I would say, but then you had to deal with the CD loading. 
Yeah. And then, like, if you, have, if you recall back in the day, right? You no, know, going from cartridge, which is zero loading, to a CD, which is a lot of loading. Ugh. Mm-hmm. You know, especially for all you poor people who had to uh, endure the Neo Geo CD. <laughs> oh my god. Remember yes. that piece of. And then I would also say I do like the arrangements, but yeah, at what price? Sure, time. it's nice. I mean, if this the CD games was worth buying just for the CD quality soundtrack. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but don't buy the console; just buy the CD games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a very tumultuous time, especially for Sega, because they were definitely struggling with their identity. Because not only did they have to kind of deal with the likes of Nintendo, but then a new player would emerge in the t- in the form of Sony. And the thing is. Sony was basically doing this all out of spite for Nintendo. Sega had yes. nothing to do with it. And they were just caught in the crossfire, basically. I mean, yeah, it was literally Sega was trying their darndest to stay as relevant and stay as hip and cool and edgy and fun as possible. But, you know, uh, even Nintendo barely survived the juggernaut that was the PlayStation 1. Yeah. And if it wasn't for the like the, the fan loyalty and the stable of like amazing like Japanese RPGs, like or even like just quality Mario games still. Whereas Sega was like, you know, you have to understand, they were even struggling to find like any true identity with their branding because like for the longest time it was Alex Kidd who was like the mascot and nobody knows who the fuck that monkey was. Yeah. It yeah. took like until like nineteen ninety one or ninety two when Sonic finally arrived and then finally yeah, and then there was never like a even like a main mothership Sonic title. I mean, the most we got was probably uh, Sonic 3D Blast, which is terrible. <laughs> and there was a Sonic racing game, which is also terrible too. So, for the Saturn, mind you. Which is why it had to actually go all the way. I think that's why Sega put all the eggs on the Dreamcast, which came out, I believe, 1999 per se. Yeah, that mm, was the day. It was yeah. I remember it was announced 98, came out 99. Their last ever hardware before they became a third party and guy. I hate to be one of those guys who kept harping on about the Dreamcast, but the Dreamcast was a glorious machine. I it mean, was... it had internet connection, it was running on Windows CE, it had its own browser. You could serve the internet on your console before even PlayStation 2. Before the Xbox. Yeah. yeah. And like also, that it had the genius uh, mini Tamagotchi kind of uh, add on pack. Uh, I don't know. The VMU, the VMU. Yes, the VMU. Especially when you were playing like uh, sports games where you could do your plays and then it would only be visible to you. You didn't have that bullshit where you had to share the screen with the guys. So if you did your 5x5x4 five by five by or your 3x2, your cross plays, whatever, it's like your, your opponent could see. There was an amount of strategy and tactics that was a. Ah. Yeah, the, dream, the Dreamcast is very important, but you gotta remember because of the history that Sega went through burning customers. You th- and I think developers. Be yeah. By this, yeah. I don't but know. It, was a it was a shame because the Dreamcast was, like you said, a lovely, awesome piece of hardware with awesome games too. Mm-hmm. I mean. So, which leads us back to Shenmue. Because yes. I would say this, right? When it comes to a lot of people, especially a lot of video game collectors, when they go and pick up themselves a Dreamcast, it's like, okay, what what do I get for the Dreamcast? Of course, of course you're gonna get Panzer Dragoon. Of course, you're gonna definitely get uh, the Sonic game that was available on it, which is like I think Adventures Two. Uh, Sonic Adventure um, One and Two, and then all the arcade port games from the Naomi board, like your mm-hmm. Marvel vs. Capcom Two, your the definitive KOFs, version yeah. of Marvel vs. Capcom Two, the best 2. version. Yeah. Okay, which you can uh, re-rip and put your own songs in if you would watch any. Class Classic evil matches. That's yes. what they used to do back in the day. <laughs> that was funny. And I would also say, like, but what would be the one prized possession in any uh, Sega Dreamcast owner's uh, library? And of course, it'd be Power Stone. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, Power Stone too. <laughs> no, it'd be it'd be Choo Choo Rocket. Duh. No. Yes, Choo Choo Rocket. <laughs> no, who could forget that? <laughs> no, it definitely have to be like the one thing that the Dreamcast was designed to push was pixels and polygons and the one game that would do the pushing 
would definitely be Shenmue, which came out in 1999, very close to the demise of the Dreamcast. Uh, spearheaded by Mr. Yu Suzuki himself and his team, and basically one of the most ambitious projects in video gaming ever. Because if you were to say, like, uh, like genre-defining, if you were to say something that not only started trends, but also broke the mold and also changed the way people viewed video games, right? Sure, everybody's gonna point to, like, Grand Theft Auto 3 for being, like, one of the first truly immersive open-world games. But then, no, right here in Asia, we're gonna be flying the flag for Shenmue, which mm-hmm. good two years in advance, before even it was a sparkle in the eye of, of, of the guys Before at the term was even made in the first place. Dude, we did it first. Asia put... Uh, open world gaming on the map with Shenmue Part 1 and the genius that is Yu Suzuki and we have nothing but high praise for Shenmue 1 for like this is a man whose entire career was all about immersion was all about perspective but also for breaking ground and also for blowing people's minds and when Shenmue came out back in the day yo nobody expected it to be as deep as convoluted and as unnecessarily detailed as it was yes and it was very strange especially for guys like us because um when it came to the 3d experience there were definitely games like tomb raider there were definitely games like maybe even quick like shooters where you had only one objective which is to open a door to open the next level to kill the thing or to shoot the what I think probably yeah. the most complicated game that came out around that time, like 98, 99, mm-hmm. who could say it's Kojima's uh, Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. And even then, when you when you see Shenmue uh, Ryo's hands, like five digits, you know, individually <laughs> rendered 3D digits, it's like, yeah, that's that's pretty impressive compared to like all the puppet sock puppet hands you see in cutscenes in I would Metal Gear or other games back in the day. I totally agree with you because definitely Kojima-san took a page from Yu Suzuki's handbook. I mean, he looked at he looked over to what they were doing with Shem when he talked to himself like, "Oh, that's a game." That's the level of uh, sprawling detail that I wish I shall attempt one day, and in which he will. Yep. To varying degrees. But he, he loved the treaty. He loved the treaty, that's for sure. And then, like, okay, we need to mention, right, like, this was no, like, passion project. No, no, no. Sega backed this thing. It was, like, the most expensive, one of the most expensive video games at the time it was costing yes. about, like, between, like, 50 to 70 million, including marketing. 47 freaking million, man. <laughs> okay, and that's for Crazy. a video game. People are complaining nowadays that Rockstar drops, like, 200 to 500 million on, like, something like a Red Dead Redemption 2. Yep. Like back in the day, like okay, that is chump change. Like, look, <laughs> this is 1999 money. If you adjust it for inflation, it's probably 200 million. And maybe. if you think about it this way, right, this was the the last year before Y2K. Like, society was supposed to end next year, so yep. this would probably be the final video game. So the Could ROI, the last game. this yeah. would have been the final video game for a lot of people. The return on investment was probably very steep. But you know, somehow, like you said earlier, Yu Suzuki probably convinced the hits over at Sega to be like, nah, trust me, this is gonna be a hit. It's gonna be a thing. I'm doing something nobody's ever attempted before. Oh, at this point in time, it's easy for him to convince people in Sega because of Hangout, because of Afterburner, because it's of cloud, Virtual right? Fighter. Yeah, it's just a cloud. Is it, is it because when the legend walks into the office and he demands something, everybody like has the cloud out to him? It's like literally. Okay, maybe not. Maybe not demand. More like I want to push Sega as the name to push. Yeah pushed our tech because, to the limit. Like, so. I would always like to uh, equate Yu Suzuki to the likes of somebody like James Cameron because like, if yes. James Cameron wants to make a movie, you give him money. He'll make yeah. that movie. That movie's going to be a hit. You know what I mean? But and I think that's where the similarity ends. That's probably where the similarity ends. Like, I won't say Shenmue is a complete failure, but we'll have to talk a bit about that. I would say like respect. it also has to be how we determine failure. If you want to talk about commercial uh, success, nah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Shenmue did not push units and look, how much did it got back after it came out in 1999? Probably only 1.2 million units were sold, and if it was oh, uh, it'll less. be like uh, 50, 60 US. You know, that's how games were back then. But mm. even so, that's not enough to cover US 50 million. I mean, you also have to understand. Back in the day, back in 1999, like for a Dreamcast game to sell 1 million plus units, proved that 1 million plus Dreamcast exist in the wild. Yes. That is true. That you know, is what I mean, true. it's yeah. no mean feat. A million video game sold in 1990s era. That's very impressive. It's extremely yeah. impressive, and I would also want to say that it wasn't hyped. It wasn't pushed down our throats in the ways like Sega. But it was. It do. was actually covered a lot. I mean, okay, advertising-wise, not so much, but mm. coverage-wise, I think everyone from Edge to your next-gen magazines were covering this left and right. And then when the reviews came out for this, I think there were. Mostly positive. They're Eight, extremely nine, positive. Yeah, I think like, a lot of、uh, critics back in the day were giving it nothing but high praise for the not only the technical fidelity but also the fact that this is the first of its kind,、yeah. and it's very hard for people to even look back and think that、uh, how, what kind of a difference did this game make? If you look at the Sony, it was the first. It was the first. It was the、period. first open world game. You could literally go to any house in the neighborhood, open any door, open any shelf, and pick up. Talk、anything. to anybody who has to, who has their own、me. routine and stuff. And like you know, back in the day, this was unheard of. And、yeah. I was, it's hard to. It's just like people are so spoiled by the likes of something like Skyrim. Or spot by the likes of something like、uh, even your、uh, Grand Theft Autos, yeah, your Grand Theft Auto. Like you, you're just、so, okay. Even in Grand Theft Auto, you can't talk to every single person on the street. Yeah, only some, not only some NPCs will respond to you. In Shenmue, everybody will reply to you. Everybody has a backstory. In fact, everybody has a daily routine that if you miss them at a certain time when they're doing their laundry or they're somewhere else, yeah, you you don't get to talk to them that day. Yeah, you gotta wait in the next day, pretty okay, much. Okay, and then、yeah. not only that, besides that ridiculous NPC like, uh, uh, what do you say, scheduled day, right? I mean, it also gave us a day and night system, variable、mm. weather effects. Yeah. And uh, like, I think the one thing that blew everybody's mind back in the day, especially me when I played Shenmue, was when you walked into an arcade in the game and you could play the games. Yes, that was. It was、so、a level、good. of inception that nobody saw, and it was like, no, no, literally, if you. Like Yu Suzuki's dream was, you could do anything and talk to anyone and interact with everything. It's like he wasn't joking. I mean, apart from the very obvious, like okay, you can't open up a manhole and drop down a sewer. No, you know, but you could definitely walk into an arcade or you know walk into a shop, order exactly what you want, and like. You know, but you generally, there's just so much detail in this game that was unheard of. Again, like just the little mini games, like uh, the gacha thing that you actually get to. And all that in a day. I don't know. As well as even the, the pachinko was so unnecessarily realistic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you cannot fault the man for pushing that kind of boundaries in terms of like detail for games or open world games again, which was never, which was never heard of back in the day. I would say also this, right? I think Yu Suzuki was a visionary in the sense where, like, maybe like how everybody nowadays is harping on the fact virtual reality is the next level of immersion, where you could interact with the virtual world. What people don't realize is like early virtual reality test was basically like ugly as fuck polygons. It's like basically lawnmower man worse. Yeah. Whereas Yu Suzuki was definitely establishing a certain foundation where like you can't have a virtual world without interactivity. You can't just walk around like if you see like a lot of tech demos of virtual reality systems, even up to this day with the HTC Vive, it's basically you're walking around an empty house or you're walk you're riding a roller coaster, but. It has not come to a point like even in Beat Saber, there's nobody talking to you. 
Yeah, you're, not, you're just basically holding two things and yeah. just hitting the. It's not a world. Like virtual reality now has not achieved the kind of fidelity that Shenmue did back in the day. And I'm not talking in terms of uh, virtual reality goggles. I'm talking in terms of like virtual reality promises us to live in an ex- uh, in an alternate universe in an alternate world. That's what yeah. the the promise has always been. Yu Suzuki built it. He built a living, breathing world with its own ecosystem with its own physics with its own uh characters with their own backstories it was and like yeah high praise to the gta guys for copying the formula and yeah. running with it and doing very but well but suzuki started it like good. we have to admit it's like you know shenmue 1 and also like the the tweaks he made in shenmue 2 like which came out like you know one one year later uh, it was two years later it was two years later oh, on yeah. the xbox unfortunately when the dreamcast was pretty much dead yeah uh, it Xbox came out. bought the license, and then they made a they made a part two to continue the story of finding. Landi I thought it was, China. but it did release on Dreamcast only in Europe and Japan. Uh, certain regions, yes. Yeah, but so uh, I remember playing this on the Xbox, but only a little bit. But I actually was glad that they made a lot of improvements in terms of like speeding up time and adding in more mini games per se. There was a bit, there was a lot more improvement which was needed from Shenmue One. Like as as groundbreaking as Shenmue was. There were a lot of tedious tedium you had to go through, which I don't think would fly beyond 1999 or even 2000 or 2001. Yeah. If you played that kind of game right now, we kind of just get pissed at it, more or less. I would say that like, uh, Shenmue 2 did not get the kind of response it did because GTA 3 San Andreas was already out. And then it was a more streamlined oh, version. Oh, the, the very first one. Uh, yeah, part 3. You're right. Um, it was yeah. like a year later or so mm-hmm. for the PS2. And yeah. that sold gangbusters. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and GTA 3 redefined open world gaming because then, like, I think open world gaming was definitely something that Yuzuki was trying to build. But I think what GTA was also, they knew that they couldn't create the kind of multi threaded narratives that a Shenmue game had. But to, uh, I would say, they emphasized on the other aspect, which is what became the, the, the most popular term, which is the sandbox game, where yeah. you could do anything, you didn't need to interact with everyone. But literally, you could ride any bike, any car. You could do all sorts of stupid things in GTA. Yeah, kill, make things explode. Yeah, yeah. and it, it, it also encouraged you not to follow the story, which is totally opposite to Shenmue. Shenmue mm-hmm. had little sections where if you were to wander too far from your objective, uh, Ryo would have to turn back and say, like, no, I need to do something first. I can't leave this area, which is still around in Shenmue 3. Yes. So, okay. you know, I would say this, right? As much as everybody was... I mean, I agree. Shenmue is the first open world game. You could literally go anywhere and talk to anybody. But it had these kind of uh, puppet strings that would always pull you back to stay in the narrative. Whereas GTA did the smart thing to counter that by... No, no, you don't have to play the main story. You can just go fuck around and blow shit up and enjoy the game. Do your side missions, that find way. the pigeons and so forth. Yeah, it's like it, it gave you a wealth of options which is something that was very stifling when you played an original Shenmue game and I do like have to kind of preface like uh, this entire episode it's like as much as we love Yu Suzuki and as much as we don't mind putting on the rose tinted glasses once in a while to talk about something like Shenmue uh, we also need to address the fact that this is a this episode is not only in celebration of the 20 year anniversary of Shenmue 1 yes <laughs> a little bit late to the party I know but we had to tie it in with the release of Shenmue 3 which just came out to a little bit of controversy because this was a Kickstarter game and then all of a sudden decided to jump on the Epic Game Store exclusive yeah, it's just Yeah, which was a bit strange. Yeah, why did it? I guess it's more money. They needed more money, I guess. Yeah, and I would say this, right? I think the promise is like when you jump on something like the Epic Game Store that they would definitely push the funding to a certain level. Now, Kickstarter-wise, I think this money, the, the game did raise, 
I would say what it intended to. I think it was yeah. Good. I guess it was mostly just to raise awareness, see who actually cares about the project. And then you would need some... a lot of people did. Yeah. Yeah, and then you would definitely need something like uh, an Epic Game Store or a publisher of that size to come in and throw even more money at it. Yeah, to make sure that the game comes out the way you want it to. I guess to use Suzuki's way, in a sense. Yeah, but I mean, I if I recall right, it was actually marked to be an Xbox One exclusive. For a time being, or was I on my mistaken? Oh no no no! I don't think it was at the time. I don't think there was even a part three being made between part two and part three, which was like twenty years ago. But I it guess. was announced at E3 about two or three years ago, right? Like Yu Suzuki came oh, out. Oh, it was a PlayStation thing. It was actually during a PlayStation. Uh, mm, event yeah, there you go. I remember it, it was. It was also kind of like people were kind of like thinking like it's available on Kickstarter and it's gonna be maybe a PlayStation exclusive. I mean, they give you that impression, but you know, like how Xbox presentations always have games being presented as world premieres. It's the same idea. Mm, like I guess you just, so. you just need a platform because the other company is forking money to for you to appear. So. Maybe so. So I mean, you probably need to review Shenmue three now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess so. I guess so. Um, so Shenmue one and two groundbreaking, breathtaking, ahead of their time, and not only spearheaded a new. Uh, way to play games but also a new way to interact with virtual worlds and this was done by the man who pushed immersion pushed perspective pushed power technology and people weren't really clamoring for Shenmue 3 there were some diehard fans and we have to acknowledge them and with a lot of money I think that Kickstarter funding was about how many million again? dude compared to Star Citizen fanboys that uh. game is in perpetual non-development and he has raised too much money. <laughs> that is a too big to fail. That game better come out somehow. And uh, what last thing I heard is like Star Citizen has been split into two games now. I found the price of six million for the Shenmue Three Kickstarter. Shenmue six Three, million. okay, a scant six million dollars compared to the original budget in 1990s money, about forty to seventy million dollars. <laughs> yes. So in my mind, I was thinking, is Yu Suzuki serious? He's, is he gonna make a game? that big with only 67 million but I do agree it's probably to spark interest and probably for him to start off like uh, pitching to other bigger studios to see who would pick up on it because if yep, you do yep. generate a certain amount of eyeballs and a certain amount of attention and especially with a brand that has a lot of nostalgia bait like Shenmue I mean basically it's this is like the equivalent of why there's a Charlie's Angels film in the theaters right now because <laughs> it's brand recognition everybody's been talking about Shenmue and tons of websites and other video game platforms would like definitely edge on a lot of people about like oh Shenmue is one of the greatest games of all time if only you were there back in the day and we were yeah. there back in the day and we agreed yes. like this is one of those things that if you weren't alive then to experience it you would not understand how uh, ahead of a uh, ahead of its time Shenmue was so when Shenmue 3 was promised so I need to kind of you gotta set things up first before you full disclosure I was really hyped for it because in my mind I thought like okay Yu Suzuki coming back to developing video games hell yeah it's exactly how I felt if like if ever somebody mentions like oh there's gonna be a Half-Life 3 which there is gonna be kinda so I'm <laughs> were hyped you too were you as excited as that game trailers guy in 2015 like there's a video going around when they saw when they hit the tune playing from Shenmue when they announced a part 3 that guy threw the headset down cheering all around in the room where he was working at he was like crying right Shenmue yes he was oh god <laughs> He must have been the most disappointed motherfucker. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he's a fanboy. I don't want to judge. I don't want to critique too hard. Okay, I will. I will critique too hard. Okay, last game fans, you know how hard I am on video games and films. And you know how hard I was on Death Stranding. 
and the very auteurish, pretentious machinations that is Mr. Hideo Kojima, I cannot stand and say that I enjoyed Shenmue 3. Oh dear, you have finished the game. Tell I us have more. I played Shenmue 3 as a fan of Shenmue 1 and 2, as a person, as a historian, as an old school gamer who gets Shenmue and who was there back in the day to play it, enjoy it, and to also champion. I was there with tears in my eyes when Sega decided to close its game development section and not focus on hardware anymore. And to me, I thought like this was this would be it. Sega would come back. They'll have consoles. Sonic would be cool again. No, that none of that happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> Probably in an alternate universe. You know, Probably like an alternate world. universe. Yeah. Nah, I but not say, now. But not here. Speaking <laughs> of alternate universes, Yu Suzuki decided to make a sequel to a game twenty years too late, and instead of making a sequel that was of its time or that was aware of the cultural climate of video games and what was uh, definitely what has been improved on what has been uh, done to death what has been tested okay Shenmue 3 feels exactly like Shenmue 1 and 2 and that's a problem and that's a game that's stuck in its own timeline like I would say that this is a game that is a relic of a time which really doesn't make sense in this day and age because it's 2019 We've had several Grand Theft Autos, several Elder Scrolls, we've had several versions of the open world game and how they push boundaries and how they have all made their own iterations and changed the way you interacted. And there's like, with a lot of uh, things that were pioneering and groundbreaking, they were definitely uh, relics of their time. They were definitely things that had flaws that you had to improve on, that has been improved on, that has, uh, you know, you know, through the course of time and through the course of like being passed through other people's hands and other people's eyes, uh, modern open world gaming is actually at, at, at a pinnacle that Shenmue 3 fails to even achieve. I would say Shenmue 3, if you love Shenmue 1 and 2, is exactly that. It's the clunky control scheme, it's the stilted narrative, it's the awkward dialogue and transitions. It's the world that is boxed in when it should feel open and all rendered beautifully in the Unreal Engine, which is kind of like... I think probably that's why they got the, the Epic Store exclusive. So they're like, hey, you know. Actually, wouldn't this game be voiced in Japanese like the original Shenmue? I mean, why couldn't they just use the original Japanese actors, you know, to voice the game so it doesn't sound as awkward as it does right now? Actually, you know what? Even if it did have the original Japanese voice actors, it would not uh, di- distract me enough from the fact that this game doesn't play very well. Ah, right. So the you controls, I mean? like you said, the same, right? The controls, uh, how awkward it is, how clunky it feels, how the world doesn't feel as open as it should. I mean, there are literally invisible walls on in the path of the first village. It's like there's things that just get in your way and there's even the worst kind of invisible wall which is the narrative invisible wall where they pull you away from a path because you need to talk to somebody else in the village but they don't tell you who. (laughs) There's still that bullshit moment is like as you're trying to explore and traverse and see how big this world is then like Ryo will just turn around about face and he'll be go like I need to talk to more people before I can leave this place. I'm like oh yeah that mechanic. It's a game that is uh, caught up in its own narrative and I think that is what everybody is looking for because for a lot of people, this is closure from Shenmue 1 and 2. And if you're looking for closure, 
I'm sorry, no, it ends on a cliffhanger as well. Oh my god, are you serious? I'm they think, so they think that this is going to have a sequel. And uh, you know what? I hope it does. Because I would say this. Um, Shenmue 3 is a game that proves to you releasing Resident Evil 2 now in its true form would not have worked. Yeah, it needed to be a remake like what yeah. came out earlier January because people expect that quality for a game mm. like this year. People interact with video games differently nowadays. I mean, back in the day with the Dreamcast controller and the single analog stick and it's designed for a controller. Ah, right, right, right. I'm playing this on a PC right now and the menu system is probably one of the most unintuitive and most clunky uh, <laughs> design directions I've ever seen in a long time. How, it, bad, how bad is it though? Like everything runs off the singular uh, inventory button, which is your, I think, uh, R bumper, right bumper, which opens up your inventory, your recipe lists. It opens up, uh, I mean, the thing is, settings is all the way at the bottom of all of this, and that's how you quit the game. You have to go to settings, then quit the title, then say yes, and then quit the game from the title screen. And it felt to me like, oh, this is not intuitive at all. And it, it feels like, there's so much more you could do with the rest of the buttons because everything, every interaction was the A button. Ah, right, right. Okay, and then ev your menu or your journal is your B button. So your task list is uh, defined by a button which should have been probably start or somewhere else. So there's always moments of me when it's like, and B is also inter uh, like the blue button for which is, I mean, sorry, it's your X button. That's also your interact with NPC button. So there are times when you're trying to talk to somebody or you're trying to start a fight with somebody, but then you eventually just open up your your journal, okay. which is extremely clunky. And then why is not only uh, your it's, it's 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 why is strange because why is your uh, what do you call your fast travel button? Oh okay. But it's also used to buy things. Why would so, you do that? I don't know. It, it it's totally strange. The control scheme, and I I'm pretty sure you can readjust it. But uh, the thing is, when you play a Shenmue game, it's like, yeah, this is the default control scheme. Like, our uh, life bumper doesn't do anything, uh, but left trigger is used for blocking in fights. Yeah, yeah, at least it makes it easy mm. for people to open it up. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I would say is that it does use the dual analogs well, which is essential when it comes to the brawling and the fighting. But the interaction that this game has, and the way it maps out the control scheme, and the way like how characters interact with you, because if you want to just talk to a person, you just need to press... Uh, a button, okay, which is your green button, if you're like if you're taking Xbox terms, and then if you want to fight a person, it's your X button, which is very confusing because that will bring up your journal. So it's like when you're trying to do missions, there's gonna be a lot of finagling between buttons and what their functions are depending on your proximity to the NPC, mm -hmm. and it gets very frustrating, especially when you're surrounded by maybe two or three people, and it becomes more or less the lines of you're looking at this one guy you want to talk to him and then you turn around and you're talking to somebody who's right behind you and I didn't want to talk to that person and you know how stilted and how awkward the dialogue is where yes. everybody says a sentence they pause for exactly two seconds before they cut to the next thing before you you can even press A to hear the next dialogue uh, section and very tedious it's very much unstreamlined it's very much you should not have button presses to continue the conversation unless there's a dialogue tree. I find it totally pointless, especially after playing something like Disco Elysium, where every button press during a conversation dialogue uh, matters. Mm -hmm. Whereas this one is just basically 
so that the person will see the next line. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? So the guy's talking, you respond. Then you need to press your talk button. Then they see the next line. And it's usually in that classic Japanese kind of, oh, if that's what it is, if that's what you say, and then you respond, uh-huh, yeah. Then you have to press the button again. And it feels to me that Yu Suzuki... This is the hardest thing for me to review because I love Shenmue 1 and to me it's one of those few games that I would give a 10 upon 10. And then Shenmue 3 is literally Shenmue 1 but with an up- updated story and with updated graphics and nothing else. Yeah, how are the graphics anyway this time around? It is... Strangely, it feels like Dreamcast graphics in terms of fidelity. Right. It's not like Horizon Zero Dawn gorgeous, amazing, jaw-dropping, how realistic this looks. When you do the, the close-ups and you see how the Unreal skin textures look, it doesn't have that kind of flat polygon vibe that maybe the Shenmue 1 or Shenmue 2 did on the Xbox. Right, it right. is definitely an up upscaled version of ugly graphics. Okay. You know what I mean? It's like when you see a HD remaster, which doesn't make sense because Shenmue 3 should have been a game that was built from the ground up. Yeah. It really feels like an old game that was given a, a, like a high-res texture pack. Okay, okay. So it's very hard for me to like say anything nice about the graphics. I mean, the lighting is gorgeous. Especially when you see how it like... Uh, but this is stuff that we've seen before. You know what I mean? Yeah, nothing really special. Nothing really yeah. groundbreaking given that this guy, the director, is known for, for pushing boundaries. Basically. And trying to be as immersive as possible. And even the character models lack a certain kind of... Uh, I mean, they fail to break the uncanny valley. Because uh, you'll have a lot of situations, and I'm not the guy to complain about this because I seldom care about the narrative of video games. But because this is a Shenmue game, I need to address this. Mm-hmm. Ryo's mouth doesn't match his words. Ooh, Neither does Shenhua. Ryo moves like a character. It's like we've played, we've seen so many Assassin's Creed games where just how, like, or even like an Uncharted game where Nathan Drake, the way he runs, looks so fluid and dynamic and natural. And the way that uh, Ryo moves in the game, he's like this clunky wireframe that is locked in. Like his arms are locked into position, his legs are locked. It is so of its Robotic, time. Robotic, basically. Yeah, Robotic, it's so like stiff and it's so unlike the cutscenes. I know I'm just kind of harping on the, the aesthetics and it's unfair because it's a Shenmue game. Because the argument we have to have is, is like, this is a game that is not designed for modern gamers. This is a game designed for Shenmue fans. Shenmue fans who raised probably $6 million on the Kickstarter and probably a few other uh, contributions here and there elsewhere. Do you but think this was intentional, come to think of it? Because I you know, can't tell. It's very hard for me to say because I don't want to say that Yu Suzuki is a man who is out of touch with the gaming industry because I doubt he is the kind of guy who is not stopping to improvise or to be immersive or to like, innovate. But then again, he is. he did deliver a product that is probably... I would say it feels very out of touch with what is expected of modern open world video games. And as much as I enjoyed Shenmue 1 and 2, and that's the thing, I, I always feel the need to constantly preface every criticism I make with that. Like, I'm not afraid of fanboys jumping on me and saying that, oh, you're not a real fan, you know, how can you say something so bad about Shenmue 3? I have to, because no, this game is not good. This game. If I had kickstarted it, I would have wanted my money back. Ooh, okay. And as much as Yu Suzuki is, was, or probably still is a genius, 
I also am the kind of guy to admit, like even with the likes of say Kojima-san, once in a while they, they throw out a shit product and we have to call it for what it is. It's like this yeah. is not good, this is not the kind of quality that we expected from you. And Yu Suzuki, I would say, he I don't know if he had it the same ambition or he had the same drive as he did back in the day. He is an older man and he is a man who was probably embittered by the process that what happened to Sega and how he stuck with the company and he probably even saw after, even after Shenmue kind of I mean it got it sold a lot back in the day but yeah. not enough to justify it's got, got get back to 47 million so he ended up I guess uh, sticking with Sega directing uh, Virtual Fighter 4 and mm. other sequels here and there I mean like but I don't know if that was his first and only flop because Shenmue 1 and Shenmue 2 was this grand idea and I also want to kind of feel like, was there a certain, I would say, uh, I know, crushing disappointment that probably scarred him for a while? Because like a personal he, disappointment. Yeah, because I can kind of understand how something like Shenmue 1, which is like how we always praise a game like Okami, which was like, it was gorgeous and it's of its time and it's something... Oh, it, it was a great game that sold shit. <laughs> yeah, it was criminally underrated and... Undersold too, yeah. Yeah, and like Shenmue definitely deserves its place in gaming history as probably uh, an important like landmark in immersion and landmark in technology. But Shenmue three is not Shenmue one. Yeah, I think that's the argument I I need to make, and I need to convince people and remind people that Shenmue three is a sequel to Shenmue one and two in every aspect, which is technical and aesthetic. But Shenmue 3 is not Shenmue 1. Shenmue 3 did not come out in 1999 or 2001 or 2002. It came out in 2019 where the rest of the world has moved on and has like... Evolved, more or less. And gaming has changed. And people need to be aware that, especially in this day and age, like games like this, we have to call it for what it is. This is, a, this is not a good quality product. And I mean, no, I mean I'm not going to be a total uh, downer on this. I mean, okay... <laughs> One okay. thing I liked. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Please tell us. What did you like? Shenmue 3 this? has the best brawling mechanics. Fucking finally. Because it's the Virtual Fighter uh, pedigree all in there with the combos and the button mashes and everything. I would say the best thing about Shenmue 3 is definitely how the fight mechanics has improved and okay, how okay. it's smooth, it's liquid. And uh, the only problem with it is like it can be hard targeting people when it comes to group brawls. But then, like, if you know how to, like, uh, if you know how to virtual fighter, you, you'll be fine. Okay. Uh, but generally, Shenmue has always been like a one-on-one fight uh, fiesta. If I remember from the first game. No, no there's there's moments where you have to fight multiple people at one point. All oh, right, right. Okay. So I mean, it's very easy to get overwhelmed. But then the trick of the matter is focus on one guy, take him down, and then whittle your way down. Keep holding block and wait for your moment. If you played enough like brawler fighting video games, you know you know what to do. You'll be yes. fine. If you play Dark Souls, this is barely a challenge. You'll be fine. <laughs> okay, uh, but actually, I also have one more good thing to add for these kind of projects because mm. of uh, very dedicated people kickstarting these things. I think we might see a sequel. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe not so soon. I want maybe one. not even four years down the line. But it does a, if Kickstarter still exists after four years, <laughs> or if Yu Suzuki still wants to make a Shenmue Four. He will probably have to get his money from really hardcore fans and probably really trusting angel investors to actually get a sequel out per after every two or three years or so. I think depending on the fan base. This is what I want to tell you, Mr. Yu Suzuki. Suzuki-san, okay, if you're listening to Last Game Partners, please thank you. Uh, I totally respect everything you did and I'm a huge fan and thank you so much for your contribution to video games. 
Shenmue 4 should not be an open world game. This is not the direction you should take. Make it a linear, chapter-based story game with levels that you attempt one after the other because that's how this Shenmue 3 feels. If you did not have an open world segment, if you did not promise us the ability to go beyond the door, I would have been totally fine with this game. It would have felt like a nine million dollar or a six million dollar game. It's like, okay, this is you're continuing the story. You're telling, you're you're promising us what happens to Shenhua and Ryo. Like, okay, we need to know, and you're providing that kind of closure. Shenmue Four onwards, I think this is your destiny. This is what Shenmue should be because Shenmue uh, Shenmue One was supposedly part chapter one of a fifteen chapter. Like epic. Yeah, fifteen. Holy crap! That's so like he probably he has like ten other video games. Uh, ten, not say video games. He's got ten other stories he wants to kind of uh, follow up with, right? Ten other chapters. Yeah. Fans are desperate to see how where that goes. They want to see the arc of Rio, and uh, I'm all for that. But don't make it an open world game. This is something that would be similar to the make it kind of like a Dark Siders, or make it kind of like. Uh, you know, like an uncharted. Don't make it open world. Don't make it interact with everything. That is too much of a distraction now. Because there are moments in this game where literally, yeah, I can just uh, fudge about and go into like different people's houses, open up cabinets, and explore and see random things in the shops. I shelves. don't think we need that anymore. We have other games for that. Help us! Don't you don't you, that is taking up way too much development and design time. Just make a story game. That's what fans want. And I would say this, right? Shenmue 3, despite its ambition, despite its budget, and despite its pedigree and its heritage, it's, a, it's still 20 years too late. It is not only a, a game that fails to rise to the to expectations of myself, but, you know, in terms of, like, how Shenmue 1 was groundbreaking back in the day, Shenmue 3 is not going to be breaking any barriers. Yeah. Not for the longest time. My final rating, I would say Shenmue 3 is definitely 4.5 upon 10. It is... Could have been a 5. Maybe DLC will change my mind down the road. But this game is... It's too much of an artifact of history to feel like something that anybody should enjoy in this day and age. And if you want the true Shenmue experience, Shenmue 1 exists somewhere. You can get the remastered uh, versions on consoles. And... If you uh, want, I should also add, if you want an evolution of Shenmue, hmm. uh, get Yakuza 0 or get any of the Ryuga Gotoku games that are out Just there. get any Yakuza game. Yeah, See, that is the true spiritual successor to Shenmue yeah. with the right budget. It's also under Sega. Actually, it's super expensive too, but they actually got more back, I guess, yeah, from selling this game. I would say that. Uh, and it also, um, I believe, uh, Toshihiro Nagoshi, he also supervised uh, Shenmue back in the day around the... Yeah, he was definitely was one of Suzuki-san's protégés and he yes. took the ball and ran. I mean, like, even the legend has it is that he pitched the Yakuza series as, it's kind of like Shenmue to which the Sega guys were like, are you sure? <laughs> that game was a flop. <laughs> yeah, but he also bet his entire career on it, his job and That's everything. That's the legend, right? Yep. And boy, did it pay off. Huh? Yes. I, I think that it was a good focus in a sense because instead of, I mean, like Shenmue, but in a nightclub life and with Yakuza, but not exactly like Yakuza life because mm. Kiryu Kazuma, the main character, is pretty much a good stand-up guy. I mean, you know, doing helping people whenever he sees them on the streets and whatnot, which, you know, not many people would do. I think that's also one thing I want to point out because when you play something like Yakuza, it is of its time. It does feel relevant and current, especially with uh, Japanese culture and what's going on. 
Yep, yep. You play Shenmue 3, it's it's, it's set in 1987. No <laughs> cell phones, no internet connection. You're, you're just walking around talking to people constantly, trying to find information and writing shit down in your journal. It's... It's a game that needs to exist to remind people how far we've come, and unfortunately, I how hope how far we've evolved in terms of games. And I will say this, right? You know, I mean, narrative-wise, okay, last game fans, especially if you're a Shenmue diehard, right? Narrative is fine. It's it's exactly what you expect, and it's not great. I'm sorry. I mean, too many people are harping on the fact that it's providing the kind of awkward janky closure to Shenmue 1 and 2 but it's like this is not the kind of story that you, they'll, they'll go down in history as one of the greatest narratives of all time I'm sorry the, the game is not good and we need to be honest about our feelings that okay this is it's not up to par to what is expected of video games in this day and age so I don't know I don't know where else to go with this maybe recommend more Yakuza games <laughs> is yeah, that, that's gonna be Yakuza, Yakuza 7 Zero. next year yeah. Yep, yep, Yakuza 7 next year, Yakuza 0 if you want to play 1 right now because you don't have to worry about all the story baggage from the previous Yakuza games. Okay, or and I like the fact that they're all self-contained even though they're considered like one after the other kind of storyline, you know, a continuous storyline of Kiryu Kazuma's mm. life. Or if you want to play a janky uh, open-world game set in the past that's out on PC, you can also get Red Redemption 2. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> a super detailed janky. A totally <laughs> open game. buggy and a broken game that... Which still runs at 30 frames per second when you put it to the highest setting on, on your PC. best cards. Yeah. What's up with that, huh? Oh, no, mm. it's an optimization issue. No, no, you know what I don't understand? Rockstar, stop forcing us to log in through your bullshit Rockstar Club. Can you <laughs> or turn your that Rockstar shit app. <laughs> Can you please turn that shit off, okay? It was annoying in LA Noir, and I want to go back to the game and redo the achievements. Fuck. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, Shenmue 3, totally... If you're a fan, and I hate saying this, if you're a fan, take it out, take a look, check it out. Buy it on sale. But if you're not a fan, yeah, you're not missing on anything. If you yeah. if you're curious about the history of Shenmue, get the first or second one remastered. And whatever you've experienced or played then is exactly what Shenmue 3 delivers. So you're not missing out on much at all, I'm sorry to say. So I would say a terrible way to close this amazing tribute to Yu Suzuki. Of, but it's kind of necessary per se because if you want to uh, appreciate the man's accomplish, uh, man's history, you got yeah. to point out the accomplishments and the flaws as well, especially if it's a recent kind of flaw. I mean, it's a very complicated and a very... Uh, I mean, it's a very distinct arc in this man's career. And I would say, I mean, he is entering his retirement phase. He's like 70-ish, right? Uh, yeah, more or less. More and less then, right. like, you know, even Shigeru Miyamoto is not, like, making Mario games anymore. Every, yeah, he's not getting any younger as well, too, so... And, he like, is... uh, I mean, we need to... But it was, a, a, for me, it was important because I wanted to pay tribute to Yu Suzuki, one of the greatest video game developers of all time. Unfortunately, his latest work... I mean, to me, he feels like a lot of, like, filmmakers who go past their prime. Yep. You know, we will always it, remember Virtua Fighter. That's we'll sure. always remember Virtua Fighter. The Smithsonian Museum will always remember Virtua Fighter. Okay, so that's been our very special Shenmue retrospective plus our tribute to Yu Suzuki, one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, a Sega treasure. A Sega treasure. He is a treasure, not just that, a video gaming legend and pioneer up there among one of the greatest. Uh, Shenmue 3, definitely not something that uh, we should remember him by. But definitely a man who has a clear and distinct vision and who is doing his best to achieve 
a story or tell a story uh, in, in a way that only he can and I would say uh, this has been a very nostalgic but also slightly depressing and sad well, <laughs> retrospective okay, it's got for me downs, I'll have to admit but again uh, we have to end it on we have to end it on that note because again we God. we appreciate the man for what he did. That's all. We we love we love you as you Suzuki. Okay, no. Um, so this has been uh, <laughs> Shafiq, and this has been Virtual Mr. Toffee signing out. <laughs>